Welcome to episode 1,126 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan. Yeah, I'm Jeff Sullivan, Fangraphs. Yeah, that sounds right. That, yeah. Something seemed off. I'm joined <laughs> by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, as uh, as as I always am. Hello. Hi. Yeah, you sound much more confident about who I am than who you are, <laughs> but I think you're right on both counts. Existential. So mm-hmm. on uh, on today's podcast, we have baseball to discuss, and there's baseball oh. that happened, and there's baseball that's going to happen. Uh, I guess before we talk about the baseball that just happened on Thursday, is there anything you'd like to bring up that has to do with baseball in general that is not directly related <laughs> to either of the games? Sure. Well, I wonder if you'd care to comment on a tweet from a few days ago by Michael Young, the former Rangers hitter for a long time hitter. He tweeted, let's be honest, three years ago, there was hysteria regarding lack of offense. This is the season of the trampoline baseball. <laughs> well, uh, I, I understand that this is the era of the bouncy baseball. However, I think mm-hmm. that baseball, if anything, has seen a decline in the number of snapped ankles and and broken femurs, so I think that the, we don't need to invoke trampolines in this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that that was the tweet that he sent out in response to the the Todd Frazier home run. Oh, uh huh. And you wrote about that. Yeah, right? that was a Todd Frazier home run where he kind of stuck his butt out and and knocked a home run out to right field, which a lot of people wanted the Yankee Stadium for being a joke, and that ball would never get out in any other ballpark. And now it is quite possible that Frazier's home run would not have left any other ballpark. However, at the end of the day, Frazier. The, despite the way that he looked, did hit that ball 100.5 miles per hour. According to StatCast, Javier Baez just the other day hit a home run that I think was 96 miles per hour, even though he pulled it and did a quote-unquote looked better. Frazier's home run was mm-hmm. legitimate, even if it was not a home run in another ballpark. It would have been a two-run double over the head of Josh Reddick. So the point, I know it looked bad, and it's really easy to be convinced by a player's follow-through that a ball shouldn't do maybe what it did, but... I think the the real takeaway is not that the ball just kind of bounced off of Frazier's bat with the high or low coefficient of restitution. I forgot which one makes the ball go go further, but high. High. Perfect. I think the real takeaway is not that the ball has a high coefficient of restitution, an unnaturally high coefficient of restitution that caused it to fly out to right field, but that Todd Frazier just has an ugly swing. And uh, there's an anecdote (laughs) passed along during the game by maybe it was Tom Verducci, maybe it was Ken Rosenthal, one of them, they were both working, that Todd Frazier, he even dislikes his own mechanics so much that he doesn't like to watch himself on video. So Todd Frazier, not much for, I guess, self-diagnosis because he doesn't want to watch himself swing. He just mm. doesn't look so good. Yeah, well, this connects to a couple of things that have been published at Ingress recently, even aside from your post on Todd Frazier's home run. But you did a, a larger post on home runs this postseason and how this has been the most home run dependent postseason that we've seen, which is not really a shock in that this season was the most home run dependent season we've seen. But it has been extreme. And you wrote about that. And then Travis Sotrick wrote about perhaps why the Yankees have been so good at home this year, which seems to be that they are really good at lifting, elevating the ball, driving it in the air. And Yankee Stadium is one of the best places to do that. And so they've been doing that an awful lot, which helps explain why they have yet to lose at home this postseason. So they're an offense that is well constructed to take advantage of this time of year. And I think that the popular conception of what kind of lineup wins in the playoffs, if any, has really changed a bit. Because I wrote about this, I don't know, maybe five years or so ago, and it was Yankees-specific because the Yankees broadcast at the time was talking about how the Yankees were ill-suited to the playoffs because they hit a lot <laughs> of home runs and were very home run dependent. And so that was, I think, the first time that I looked into this and tried to see if there was any truth to that, found that the opposite was true, that teams that are very dependent on the home run actually see their scoring decline less in October. And since then, I've written about it a couple of times and I've seen it more and more and heard it more and more. And now I don't really hear the idea so much that you have to play small ball or manufacture runs or not sit and wait for the home run in the playoffs to win. And if anything, I've heard it discussed as an advantage for the Yankees this postseason. And maybe that's just because, you know, there are just so many home runs in the game today that the idea of playing small ball just seems unrealistic. 
Yeah, you. I think the last time you wrote about this, it had to do with the Blue Jays. At least that's the last time I remember you writing about this. Uh, talking about the Blue Jays, and, yeah, yeah, last year, yeah, and how? Well, I guess the same thing you just said. Teams that hit a lot of home runs tend to see their run scoring decline less in the playoffs. And I admit, I'm I get a little confused because when I've looked at this in the past, I see that or I found that like contact hitters are better against power pitchers, but still, right? I found that too. Yeah, it's like all else being equal contact hitters are have a slight advantage against power pitcher or high velocity pitchers but usually all things are not equal it's not like you have one really great contact hitter and one really great power hitter and the only difference is is the contact usually if you have a low contact hitter he's going to be a a better hitter often is the case once you get to the major league level just because that low contact will be associated with high patience or high power so I think overall, you'd rather have the low contact lineup, but if you have two evenly balanced lineups, you'd rather have the high contact version of that. So it's kind of confusing, (laughs) but I think overall, when it gets to the playoffs, like you'd rather have the Yankees type lineup than the Royals type lineup, for instance. And what's funny about this is that the Astros are the lineup that has contact and a power and then they're Both. terrible all of <laughs> yeah. a sudden they can't they can't hit mm-hmm. or score so yep. uh, maybe the Astros are the best evidence that sometimes in the playoffs things just happen uh, there's an expression for that that mm-hmm. is a little too adult for this program and uh what happened to the Astros is or at least what is happening to the Astros just happened to the Cubs uh, as far as the home runs go now we have some updated numbers I can tell you that in this postseason after game five of the NLCS there have been a total of 246 runs scored in the playoffs and after yesterday exactly half of those runs have scored on homers yesterday there were 12 Mm. runs and chris bryant homered i guess i actually missed when that happened because by that point the game was already nine nothing but chris (laughs) bryant barely hit a home run good for him that's uh that accounted for the 100 of the cubs runs yesterday and then of course on the dodger side they had 16 hits kike hernandez had three of them and they they went a long way he drove in seven runs on home runs a solo shot a two-run shot and a grand slam that effectively ended the game very early. So that was 8 out of 12 runs yesterday that scored on the home run. So that brought uh, baseball prospectus. I think it was Joe Sheehan, like 12 years ago, came up with the term Mm -hmm. Guillen number on baseball prospectus to describe a a simple concept, just the the ratio of runs that score on home runs, with a denominator being overall runs. And so in the regular season this year, unsurprisingly with strikeouts up but home runs up, the league achieved its highest ever Guillen number overall. I think it was 43%. And it used to be in the 30s as recently as like three or four years ago. And uh, in the playoffs, we're up to 50%. So 50% of all runs scoring on the home run. And I guess the question there becomes, is this happening because it's just better to be a power hitter in the playoffs? Or is this happening also in part because players are trying to be more powerful hitters in the playoffs and they're Mm. not focusing on singles? Or There have only been, I think, three stolen bases in the league championship series so far it seems like base running is just not a part of what's happening right now and there are reasons for that if it's if you're not reaching first base in the first place it's hard to do any running if everyone's hitting home runs Mm -hmm. but where we are now uh, we're up to 50 percent all run scoring on homers and not it's even though there's a lot of noise in that particular statistic for the playoffs still seems like this is definitely just going to be the trend i don't know why anyone would focus on small ball anymore when as you've brought up time and time again, just so hard to string together hits and walks in the playoffs because the pitching is so good, Jose Quintana aside. Yeah, and Joe originally came up with that Kian number name because the White Sox at the time were getting credit for small ball, and everyone was saying, oh, Ozzy Kian is small ball, put the ball in play, manufacture runs, and that's why they're succeeding. And that was not at all because the White Sox were pretty reliant on the home run, and so they hit lots of homers and Joe was trying to show that that was what was behind their success. And yeah, I I don't think an explanation could be that this is just a particularly high Gian number group of teams, right? Because it's not really. It's not like all of the teams that were most reliant on homers made the playoffs this year. I mean, the Yankees, I think, had the highest Gian number of any playoff team, and they only ranked sixth in the majors this year. And you had like the Red Sox made the playoffs. They were second lowest, actually, in Gian number. The Rockies were 26th, and then Cleveland was like 21st. So Houston's 16th, Nationals 15th, so Cubs 14th. So it's not like 
you know, if anything, it seems like this year's crop of playoff teams was maybe below average collectively in Gian mm-hmm. number, certainly not notably above average. So it's not just that. And only one team in the regular season actually broke 50% this year, the Blue Jays. So uh, it's not like you could take the, the highest Gian number teams and put them all in the playoffs and get a 50% Gian number. You still wouldn't make it. So I think, yeah, it's probably, I mean, I guess it's, it's always higher in the playoffs because you have better pitching and you have better defenses and it's harder to string together runs. And so the runs that do score are more likely to have been homers. And maybe that's all that explains it. Maybe there are some good home run ballparks like Yankee Stadium in play this year that helps a bit. It's been a little warmer than usual, perhaps, for this time of year. <laughs> so probably that combined with small sample, I suppose. Pertinent to that penultimate point, as Sam Cut. Miller has brought yeah. up and as other people <laughs> have brought up because the Dodgers made the World Series, the current forecast for game one of the World Series on October 24th in Los Angeles is <laughs> 101 degrees. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad I don't <laughs> live in a place without seasons and weather. I cannot uh, <laughs> wrap my head around... I mean, I, I remember watching like a, a Fox Saturday broadcast from Dodger Stadium like, I don't know, 18, 20 years ago. I was a kid, but I remember they were doing a sideline report with whoever was a sideline sideline reporter back then, and he was down on the field at Dodger Stadium, and it was a, a hot day, but he had one of those like uh, surface thermometers showing like, oh, sure, it's like 95 degrees in the air, but down here on the field, the heat is just radiating, and it's like coming up from the ground, and it was mm-hmm. like 120 degrees, so I don't know exactly what it's going to be actually on the field at Dodger Stadium, but it's going to be warmer now granted the game is probably going to start at what 508 or something local time so it'll be uh, a little post peak but nevertheless ball's going to be flying although clayton kershaw is going to be mm-hmm. pitching so maybe the ball won't be flying but then clayton kershaw's given up a lot of home runs so maybe the ball will be flying who knows it's going to be hot yeah That's the point. hot game <laughs> Yeah, so Kershaw did not give up a lot of home runs in Game 5. He pitched well. Jose Quintana did not. And I guess the bullpen disparity was was stark in this game as it was in the whole series. The Dodgers just went with the guys who've been good with them all all October. It was just Kershaw to Maeda, Morrow, and Jansen, and scoreless bullpen work. Kershaw went six, gave up one run. Did you happen to notice how many times he did the drop-down sneaky pitch in last night's start? Because you wrote about it yesterday and how he's brought that back. Yeah, so Kershaw did it four times yesterday. And this is, I don't know, I don't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast, but quick summary is that late last season, last September... I guess that's September 2016. Clayton Kershaw started to fold in. He would uh, He's uh, extremely over-the-top delivery as a pitcher, and he started to fold in a three-quarters arm slot. He said he was inspired by Rich Hill, who drops down to throw fastballs and curveballs. And Kershaw, he doesn't... What do you say drop down? Usually you're, you mean someone is going like full sidearm. Kershaw's not doing that, but that's because for most pitchers, dropping down means dropping down from three-quarters. Kershaw just drops down two three-quarters. And last mm-hmm. year he threw, I think it was 25... 25 or 30 pitches from sort of the uh, the lower arm slot. All of them were fastballs. It wasn't great. Uh, I'm still not convinced it's a great idea, but it's just interesting because it's Clayton Kershaw. And this season, mm-hmm. when the season opened, uh, Kershaw wasn't doing it anymore. And then in May, it uh, it reappeared. And he went on this little streak where over, this, over the course of seven games in a row, he did it 35 times. And for the first time that he started using this alternate angle, he folded in a breaking ball from that slot. He struck out Eric Thames looking with a curveball from the other slot. I wrote about it because in the summer I get desperate for anything to write about. But on June 19th, I think it was, Kershaw threw his his 35th low slot pitch of the season, 35th also in seven consecutive starts, and Jay Bruce hit it for a home run. And just like that, Kershaw stopped doing it. He stopped using that arm slot for a while. He did it one time in the middle of September. And then in the playoffs, he brought it back, did it two times in his first start, did it three times. His next start used it to strike out Javier Baez looking, which that happened three times in the series, which is unbelievable. And uh, and then yesterday he did it four times. And when Kershaw uses that slot and when he throws a fastball, it's usually about a mile and a half or two miles per hour faster than his usual fastball, which seems like that's good. But if you watch specific video of Kershaw using this angle, it kind of it must mess with his delivery because his follow through is ugly. Mm-hmm. Velocity is still there. And uh, of course, as a natural consequence of using this other slot is that his his fastball has more horizontal movement and it has less rise. So it, it's uh, it always gets classified as like a two seam fastball uh, instead of his his usual 
straight up four seamer. I still, I'm still not sure it's good for him to mess around with. Not because I think he's going to get hurt. I just, it hasn't been great yet. It hasn't yeah. worked that mm-hmm. much. It, it hasn't helped him get a whole bunch of strikeouts. It hasn't helped him get swings and misses. He usually does it in a two strike count, but it doesn't seem like his control or command is all the way there. And he does mix in the occasional breaking ball. He used it against David Peralta in the first round. If you remember, the Diamondbacks were actually in these playoffs not too long ago, and Kershaw got Peralta to pop out using a, a lower slot a breaking ball. But I don't know. The fact that he's used it now in all three of his playoff starts this season implies that he thinks this is good and helpful. And he's Clayton mm-hmm. Kershaw, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But I don't know. Just I haven't yeah. seen it in the numbers yet. And I, I wonder if he knows what to do with a effectively a two-seam fastball because he's just not that kind of pitcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it bodes well for his future that he is willing to tinker and try new things like this because at some point he will have to. He hasn't reached that point yet. He's doing just fine. But at some point when he loses stuff or injury issues get worse or just the natural aging process, he might need to experiment a bit the way that Rich Hill, who inspired him to do this, did. So maybe it's a good sign that even more or less at the peak of his powers, he's willing to try something new. And maybe he's brought it back now because he feels like he's taking teams by surprise like when he was using it quite often early in the season or in the middle of the season and then went almost cold turkey with the drop down for months and then brought it down really back in time for the playoffs and maybe he thinks that he's you know this is a time of year when advanced scouting is really ramped up and more people are devoted to it for more time and people are paying more attention to player tendencies so he'll bring back this thing that probably is not in the advanced scouting reports because he hasn't been doing it for months and take people by surprise but yeah i don't know the results are are not overwhelming i'm not altogether convinced that it's enough of a change and maybe maybe i'm wrong because i'm I'm looking at rich hill's release point plot and it's his slots aren't that much separate from kershaw's but here okay so here's the thing with kershaw when he does his his sort of drop down slot if you will he is release point moves about like a foot toward uh toward first base and it, it drops down uh, a few inches but with rich hill hill's usual slot is a little more three quarters and then he drops down almost sidearm and i wonder mm. now kershaw used this other angle i think he he said he used to do it more in high school maybe it was his natural arm slot in high school i, I don't know but i just wonder maybe he's not maybe he's not showing enough of a change to the hitter so maybe it just doesn't really mean that much because his his fastball still is it's just moving like a two-seam variety of his usual fastball and his, his breaking ball doesn't look that much different it just has uh, less drop and more horizontal movement than his usual curveball that's what you expect when you have this other slot but rich hill goes a little more sidearm and sidearm pitchers are funky and the ball does things that are completely different than they do when it comes out of the normal slot so i'm not encouraging kershaw to mm-hmm. go all the way sidearm because i don't know if that would be helpful it would be hard to pick up another slot but i do wonder if maybe it's just not actually worth the trouble because it's just not that different that all being said the way that i look at this mostly is I'm going to guess there have been all, all these questions about whether or not Clayton Kershaw is fully healthy and we don't know what kind of condition he's in. And I would assume that from Kershaw's perspective, you probably wouldn't be messing around with this alternate delivery if you were concerned about your own health. And so I take it as sort of a proxy indicator that Kershaw feels just fine. I know that he's given up home runs in the playoffs and whatever. He hasn't looked Kershaw in for the last little while, but I'm that's just a little hunch that I have. I think that he's he feels good. And I think I know that if he feels good because he's willing to put his body through a motion that's a little different from what he usually does. Uh Yeah, that's possible. And I think probably the most important thing is not whether he's dropping down or not, but just the fact that he has not had to start on short rest. He has not been pushed nearly as hard in these playoffs as he has in previous ones and the Dodgers just haven't had to use him like that because they've been cruising so far and that's good because you know he has sometimes started well on short rest but then has maybe not been so good in a start after a short rest start anyway he's just been pushed really hard and stretched because of a bad bullpen because the rotation wasn't quite as good as the Dodgers rotation currently is or because they were just on the verge of elimination and because that hasn't been the case he's now pitching deeper into the calendar year at least than he ever has before but presumably I mean if he's 
healthy if if his back is healed then perhaps the time off when he was on the DL and the fact that he has been used more lightly this October could help him in the World Series and maybe that has something to do with the fact that he pitched pretty well last night although almost everyone <laughs> pitched well against the Cubs in these yeah playoffs. for I, I did tweet this out but so the Cubs in the NLCS managed an on base percentage of 193 over five games. Oof. 193. They they had a they slugged better than the Astros are currently slugging, but in terms of getting on base, which is more important, there's nothing. And the last time there has been a worse team on base percentage in a playoff best of seven series was 1905. There were a few. <laughs> there were two worse OBPs in best of five game series, and as you can imagine, both the teams that were worse got swept in three games. But nevertheless, best of seven series, 1905. Been a long time. 1905, you might recognize being a date that precedes the other Cubs World Series championship. So mm-hmm. pretty bad history <laughs> there. But you bring up an interesting point because we have talked and you've written during the year about how the Dodgers manipulate the deal, etc., etc., given their pitchers all this rest. Now, I don't think that they intended to have to rest Kershaw when they did because he was just injured and that injury was legitimate. But yeah. we are in the playoffs now and we've seen, obviously, the Cubs pitching staff has not been good, was not that good. I can use the past tense now, and their bullpen was woefully ineffective during the playoffs, and we've mm-hmm. seen the Astros' bullpen has been ineffective, and we've just seen good pitchers who haven't looked very good in the playoffs, and part of that is noise, part of that is the hitting is good, but you wonder if maybe, if we want to give the Dodgers real extra credit here, you wonder if maybe their their disabled list manipulation and sort of coerced rests has just helped them specifically mm-hmm. now, because this, is, this isn't just yeah. the seventh month of competitive baseball. They've been the spring training starts in February, and so games start in March, so that's another month. So this would be the eighth month of playing baseball on a regular basis, and, you know, it takes a lot out of you. Uh, it, it's really interesting. Yeah. if you, you only really get anecdotal evidence, but if you talk to some players or read some interviews to see how their bodies change over the course of a season, because there are just things that you can't really do. You eat differently, you exercise differently, and, and people's bodies just aren't the same by the end of September as they are in February or March when they check into spring training. And so now, a lot of mm-hmm. players who have postseason adrenaline, but also they're kind of running on fumes. And if the Dodgers are able to give their players sufficient rest, then this seems like this would be a great time for them to be peaking. They would have just a little bit extra left in the tank. And I mean, it's hard to argue with the results. They've clobbered their opponents. They've won seven of eight in the playoffs. They just annihilated the Cubs, who are a good team. They're a very good baseball team, but they looked like they didn't even belong in the same field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, even if you, if it is the Yankees who end up matching up with the Dodgers, compare the workloads of their starters to Dodgers starters. And, you know, Luis Severino has pitched more innings than any Dodgers pitcher. Masahiro Tanaka has pitched more innings than any Dodgers pitcher. And even if you just go like the starters who will be used in this series, Sonny Gray and CC Sabathia have both pitched more innings than Rich Hill, for instance, or Kenta Maeda, and Alex Wood, I guess, is is just above those two guys, or below Gray, just above Sabathia. So yeah, I don't know what difference those you know twenty inning or so differences between starter workloads make, but maybe something. And yeah, I mean the. Dodgers, no Dodgers starter had more than 27 starts this season. So that would presumably, in in theory at least, be helping them out now. It's hard to quantify exactly how much, but it seems reasonable to think that that's the case. So I was looking at Brandon Morrow because Morrow sort of appeared with the Dodgers later into the year. He wasn't expected to be the important critical bridge to Kelly Jansen that he's become, and he's been great. Brandon Morrow, very good during the regular season. He didn't allow a home run, but uh, he did did throw 20 innings this season in AAA. I don't know if you ever looked at this because Morrow, Mm -hmm. of course, he came from the, he was with the Padres last year and he wasn't good and he was with a Morrow has traveled is the point so anyway before he was called up to the Dodgers and became entrenched in the bullpen he pitched with Oklahoma City Dodgers affiliate in AAA guess his ERA over the 20 innings <laughs> uh, like 0. 0.3 7.2 <laughs> Brennan oh Morrow, <laughs> okay. Morrow allowed 18 runs <laughs> in AAA in 20 innings. 18 runs in 20 innings. Wow. Since then, with the Dodgers, he has allowed, including the playoffs, 11 runs over 52 <laughs> innings. So 52 innings for Brennan Morrow <laughs> as a major leaguer, regular season playoffs, 10 run, or 11 runs. 
Triple A, 20 innings, 18 runs. I don't know what happened. I have absolutely no explanation. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to this. This is like the time of year when I wish that Vince Scully were more selfish <laughs> and self-aggrandizing because how amazing would it be if Vince Scully would come back to call the World Series? Won't happen. He wouldn't even call the playoffs last year in his big retirement tour because he didn't want to make himself the focus of it. So I guess... I wish that he were selfish right now, but if he were selfish and ever wanted to draw attention to himself, he would not be the even Scully that we loved for so long. So you, uh, can't have one without the other. Did you see the tweet after after the game yesterday? I saw a picture of him hold, yeah, holding a, a Go Dodgers flag or yeah, something. Yeah, that was enough. It warmed yeah. the heart. Yeah, it was nice. Shifting, of course, the Astros and the Yankees will play Game 6 on Friday night, but I don't know. We have two options here. We can either talk about the Astros and the Yankees some more, or we can sort of talk about what the Cubs do now, because you mm. you might remember that when the Cubs won the World Series last year, they, were, they didn't just win the World Series. They were the best team in baseball, and they were clearly the best team in mm-hmm. baseball. And they were so good, people talked about them as a potential dynasty, and even though it's almost impossible to build a dynasty in the major leagues right now, they had and have such still such a good young core they were so good coming into this season that on uh, on a certain effectively wild podcast uh, uh, one of the co-hosts expressed disbelief that a projection system thought that the Dodgers would be eight games better than the Cubs and well the gap turned out to be bigger than that especially when you fold in the playoffs so I wonder I do believe somewhat in the championship hangover theory I do think that it takes a toll on your body, never mind anything psychological, but I think it just takes a toll if you play a month of extra baseball as the Cubs did last season. They were an excellent baseball team, one of the better baseball teams in history last year. That cannot be taken away from them. They won the World Series as they should have, but things feel different now, and of course things will feel different following a season where you don't win the World Series and you aren't the best team in baseball, the Dodgers or the Indians, best team in baseball this year. But where are the Cubs? Where do you see the Cubs now? Because as you look at this team, not a whole lot has changed about it roster-wise from last year, but now they're going, they're probably going to lose Jake Arrieta. I can't imagine he's going to re-sign. Kyle Schwarber has not developed into the Jim Tomei-like outfielder that I think the Cubs mm-hmm. maybe have pitched him as. Javier Baez is still, he's not a, well, he's not a bad hitter, but he looks a lot more like a bad hitter <laughs> than a good hitter most of the time. Addison Russell is not broken out. John Lester all of a sudden started giving up a whole lot of runs. Kyle Hendricks was great this year, but you never like to see a pitcher lose two or three miles per hour when he has no miles per hour to lose. Bullpen still kind of an unanswered question. There's just, there's a lot to wonder about with this Cubs team all of a sudden. And I know that this is what happens when you have any good team that as soon as it hits a rough patch you start to see the flaws on the roster they become more apparent but where do the Cubs where do you think the Cubs go from here because they are still in a wonderful situation but you remember even even a year ago I think we were fielding questions about what team would you most like to have for the next five years and we were like oh it's it's almost certainly the Cubs and maybe it's the Dodgers and now it I don't think I would pick the Cubs anymore but I don't know do you think that's recency bias or is that legitimate yeah I I wouldn't pick the Cubs over the Dodgers anymore, I think, but I think the Cubs are still in a pretty enviable position, and I think they'll probably be back in the playoffs again next year. I just don't really see any of the other NL Central teams starting the season with as strong a roster, and maybe the the Brewers, I don't know if they'll take a big step back, but they might not immediately build on what they did this year, and I don't know. I'm sure the Cardinals will be fine, but uh, I just I don't really see that happening. So I think that they have to do some things. Obviously, they need some starting pitching. It seems pretty clear they have to decide whether they want to try to bring back Arietta or whether they want to go after Darvish or Rotani or anyone else who's available or maybe both of those things. They probably need multiple starters because what they're bringing back Quintana, who I guess is the safest bet in their rotation Mm -hmm. right now. And then there's Hendricks and Lester, but they have some work to do clearly beyond that. And there are free agents available and they do have some money to spend. And they also have some position players to potentially trade. So even though they've already done that to a certain extent, they've, you know, they like traded Starlin Castro because Starlin Castro didn't really fit on their team anymore. And now Starlin Castro could be in the World Series. (laughs) But they have, you know, Ian Happ now who doesn't really have a 
regular clear space to play and they have Schwerber who they seem really really attached to but just seems more and more like an American League player at this point and then they have Javier Baez who is capable of playing shortstop it seems and is not playing it for them so maybe he'd have more value to another team and so I don't know they they could trade one of those surplus position players for pitching they could just sign pitching they've got to rebuild a bullpen but that's the kind of thing that uh, you can do in an offseason the nationals did it at the deadline so i think they're in solid shape but they'll probably be busy maybe busier than a team that is this good and this well positioned typically would be i guess if they want to rebuild the bullpen they can just wait and try to find triple a pitchers with the arrays over seven and then those guys will right. become yeah. unbelievable postseason exactly. anchors. So I guess if you want to focus on, on the good news that did happen this year for the Cubs, one they won their division. They this was a very good team. They just fell short. There were a lot of good teams who made the playoffs. So no real shame in not winning the World Series this season. They did make the championship series. They beat the Nationals. That's great. Overall, mm-hmm. pretty good yep. year for the Cubs. Ended with a with kind of a wet fart noise. But anyway, mm-hmm. it was not a horrible year. They did get Jose Quintana, and Quintana uh, yesterday aside pitched well for them. But on the position yep. player side, you know, Bryant great, Rizzo great, but Harris I think established himself as an everyday catcher, even though he's a seems mm-hmm. to not be a very good receiver yet. Maybe he'll work on that. So Contreras established himself. Ian Happ I think was probably better as a rookie than a lot of people expected him to be. He was an above average hitter, played a few positions. Albert Amora was able to be a, an average hitter. He played a lot. He wasn't an everyday player, but he played regularly and he established himself as a legitimate major leaguer. So there were bad things that happened, but Arietta probably no longer the Cubs concern. Lester is a concern. You've got, you kind of have to wonder why Russell hasn't gotten better or what on earth you do now with Jason Hayward. You don't know what Ben Zobra says yeah. left in the tank, but still there's, there's a lot to do here in my head. People ask pretty often for me or for other writers to try to pick favorites or where we think Shohei Otani is going to land. And you can't do it because I don't know Shohei Otani. I don't know anybody who knows Shohei Otani. And I bet even Shohei Otani himself doesn't know where he's going to go or where he's going to want to go. I have absolutely no idea what is going to guide him in a certain direction. But it sure feels like the Cubs are a, a probable option here or at least a possible option. Now, granted, because all 30 major league teams, probably, hopefully, all 30 major league teams are going to make the same kind of general bid for Otani. Even the favorite might have like a 10% chance of getting him because I don't know how one team separates itself from another but still the Cubs are in a great position and they could tell Otani look you could be the ace on this team you could be the savior whether he should play in the American League I don't know what exactly what his preference is going to be but it's kind of amazing how quickly things could change because maybe maybe you'd rather have a team sign Darvish maybe he feels safer as a as an available starting pitcher I don't know he's had Tommy John surgery but Darvish is out there he changes the whole complexion of a rotation and so probably does Shohei Otani so the Cubs can have their mm-hmm. biggest question, I think, answered on the market. But yeah, you wonder what sort of marketability someone like Baez or Hap would have. Hap has the strikeout problem and Baez has the other strikeout problem. So I don't know exactly how desirable they will be, but they would be easy to move. And this is going to be a more interesting winter for the Cubs than the last one was, because after the last one, the Cubs probably thought, well, we don't. You can't see me. I'm clapping my hands together as if I'm dusting them off, <laughs> yeah. they, they were mm-hmm. probably are like, well, we don't have to do a thing. Oh, now they do. Now they have to be active. So this is going to be interesting because it's going to be Cubs front office trying to reestablish the uh, the level of talent that made the team look like a dynasty in the first place. Mm-hmm. And some of these guys are young enough that there could still be maturation coming, whether it's Baez, who's 24. He was basically a league average hitter this year. I don't know that he's ever going to be a really good hitter because of his plate discipline problems, but maybe he gets a bit better. Addison Russell is still only 23. He'll be 24 next year, and he kind of took a step back offensively this year, and I think you could still forecast growth from him. Maybe even, I don't know, as great as Chris Bryant has been, maybe he even has uh, another gear. He's a little bit older. He'll be 26 next year, so... There's no real reason to expect him to take a huge leap, but I wouldn't be shocked if he had a better season than this year. So I could see some some growth from some of their young guys, and Contreras, of course, kind of took that leap this year. By the way, where did their Team BABIP allowed end up? Because we had forecasted that. Yeah, what did what do we forecast? Season, like? right? We both... 
it was uh, we forecasted like somewhere around halfway between league average right. and where they were like last 270 year, something is probably what we forecast and the answer is yeah cubs this year wound up at 285 285 mm. right uh, i think yeah, if I remember right, that was like exactly what Pakoda had for them. Something. Well, like isn't that, that so. nice, Pakoda? Looks like you nailed. It. <laughs> yeah, so they were still what sixth yeah. lowest team people out, which is good. But yeah, the, coming off of the best defensive performance ever potentially <laughs> last year, I wasn't sure what to expect, and I guess I I ultimately settled on something a little bit better than what they ended up with. But of course they played Kyle Schwarber in left field for a lot of this year. And some guys were older like Zobrist. Anyway, I was wondering if they had some kind of secret stat cast <laughs> positioning. Yes. That was leading to this last year. And if they did either it stopped working or other teams caught up or most likely they just didn't. Yeah. I can't tell if it makes it what the Cubs did last year more or less extraordinary because just to repeat this number that we've talked about so much before, two years ago, Blue Jays allowed the second lowest map up in baseball, 282, and the Cubs were first at 255. That's just so unbelievably extreme. It's one of the most, genuinely, it's one of the most stunning baseball statistics that I've seen put up on a team level in my time being aware of baseball teams. That is just such an extraordinary performance. And so many things had to come together. And even though I know that from an analytical perspective, you say like, well, in one season is still a small sample. I don't, I don't, 1500 innings comes through. And that's yeah. what they did. And it was it was their defense. It was a little bit of luck. And it was, I think, also just the, the pitchers were better. I think you look this year, guys like Lester, Arietta, Hendricks, they just had less stuff. And so they couldn't quite avoid hard contact the way that they did last year. So I don't know. It would have been interesting to see if the Cubs just like broke Babip and did it again this year. But yeah, uh, I don't want to take anything away from the 2016 Cubs. It's just more evidence of how freaking good that team was. And it's a shame for mm-hmm. them that they couldn't repeat it. But uh, whatever. Now we get to see the Dodgers. And that's kind of fresh. I had forgotten gotten separately but also about the Cubs I, I had forgotten that Wade Davis is going to be a free agent so they will as you said they mm-hmm. need to rebuild the bullpen but they really need to rebuild the bullpen they need to add a, a good amount and I'm going to guess that Wade Davis will yeah. not be resigning man Charlie Culberson was so much better than any Cubs hitter <laughs> in this series that's just unfair <laughs> the guy that the Dodgers had to play because their best player basically Corey Seager was not available was better than any cup so not only did Seager being out not hurt the Dodgers but if anything it probably helped them right because <laughs> you wouldn't expect Seager to have a 1235 OPS as good as he is over five games and that's exactly what Culperson did so uh Everything's coming up Dodgers. Charlie Culberson, over his major league career, 443 plate appearances, 48 WRC+, 48. That means 52% worse than average. He has a career wins above replacement of negative 1.2. Charlie Culberson, based on his major league performance record, is terrible. And he had... He had two doubles and a triple in the LCS alone. The Cubs had one double and zero triples. The Cubs, as a team, in five games. Culberson didn't even start all five games for the Dodgers. He started, what, three, right? Because I think... Uh, yeah, he got into Taylor. five, but he yeah. didn't start them all. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Charlie Culberson. I mean... <sighs> I mean, I don't even, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but it is, I guess, if anything is important, everything is important. And it is worth pointing out again, I guess, that this wasn't just the Dodgers dismembering the Cubs like limb by limb, but this was the Dodgers doing that to the Cubs without Corey Seager, who's like a top 10 player in baseball. And he was replaced with trash, like statistical (laughs) trash. And it didn't matter if anything, it made the Dodgers better. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's not fair. (laughs) Oh, well. So we have one half of the World Series matchup set, and I don't know, we can't really preview the World Series yet because we don't know the Dodgers' opponent yet, and we will have a day with no baseball before and during our next podcast, so we'll have time to do a World Series preview then. Any other thoughts on Dodgers, Cubs, Astros, Yankees matchup heading into Game 6? Well, uh, where would you put the... Well, I don't know any gambling. Well, I know gambling terms. I just don't know how to use them. So where would you, yeah, where would you gambling something... Where would you gamble things about <laughs> the Dodgers and Cubs meeting in the NLCS again next season for the third year in a row? Hmm... I'd say there's got to be, I mean, the odds of both of them winning their divisions are 
very yeah. good. I think that the Dodgers are, I don't want to say they're a lock because there are some good teams in the NL West, but they are pretty, pretty close to it. So I don't know. I'd say there's got to be like a, what, 60% chance, 70% chance that they both make the playoffs. I mean, the Cubs, we would have said there was they were as close to a shoe in as you could get this spring and they almost didn't make it so yeah i mean I, there's got to be a 70 75 i don't know something like that percent chance that they both make it to the playoffs at least and win their divisions and then maybe i don't know a 60 percent chance for each of them that they make it through the division series let's say something like that so yeah i'd give it like a i mean probably like a 25, 30% chance? Is that too high? It's probably too high, maybe just because there's the chance that they would have to play each other in the NLDS. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Well, (laughs) let's say a Cubs-Dodgers matchup. Yeah, Cubs-Dodgers matchup. Yeah, it it feels like it's just going to be... I don't mean to, like, cast the Nationals aside, but, you know... Let's mm-hmm. uh let's let's maybe let's quit it with like the recent team history. Let's maybe find a new identity, guys, because this one's kind of played out. <laughs> but yeah, Nationals probably going to be there. I assume that they'll be better than the Mets again. Going to be a big year for the Nationals. Last year with Bryce Harper, uh, it's going to be an interesting season. Yeah. And also, I think the last year with Daniel Murphy under contract. So who knows what the future of the Nationals will look like? So they'll have extra motivation to not be cripplingly awful in the playoffs next year. But outside of that, feels like the Cubs and Dodgers just easy to take it to the bank not a gambling term but a financial term uh for whatever it's worth this season at the end of spring training the cubs on fangrest were given a 28 percent chance of appearing in the lcs and so were the dodgers the cubs indians and dodgers had the highest chances of making it to the lcs and uh two of them did yeah Mm -hmm. all right so we've got potentially two more games here in houston we've got verlander starting game six i don't know what do you think are are the odds of a Astros comeback following the Yankees comeback that already happened. Well, so like you said on the other podcast, when teams have gone home while behind 3-2 yeah. in a best of seven series, they've actually still won 13 of 27 times, which I don't want to make more of that than I guess I am now as I say this out loud, but that <laughs> stunned me then. It continues to stun me now. I don't care if that's a small sample. That's still really good success. So I would mm-hmm. say that I would probably, if you if this were 50-50, then you would say the Astros have a 25% chance of, of winning the series. I think it's, I would say it's maybe more like 35 percent maybe that's maybe that's too high i don't know but you know the odds don't really matter people don't care about the odds they hear them they understand them then if you're a fan they're immediately dismissed because all you care about is just mm-hmm. winning i think even when you're up 3-0 in a series you don't really care about the odds because you just nothing matters until you get that fourth win so you're gonna have mm-hmm. verlander going but from the Yankees perspective I guess it's it's still about the bullpen and they their bullpen is going to be extra rested they didn't pitch yesterday they know that they're Mm -hmm. just they can go as hard as they want basically for these last two games Severino is pitching and he's quite good now granted in his first start in the series he didn't strike out a single hitter which was weird and he was removed with what seemed like a shoulder thing but the Yankees said he was fine but you don't really know but the fact that he's starting today in the first place implies that the Yankees must have determined that he's healthy enough to go Mm -hmm. I I think this is game six is going to be a game where the Astros are like we don't want to go to the bullpen at all please pitch everything again Justin Verlander well the Yankees will look at Severino and say let's get 70 pitches in and then let's go to the other guys so Mm -hmm. it'll be again a very different strategy but from the Astros perspective there's no one you'd rather have on the mound for this game and so I yeah I certainly don't have a prediction at this point because who could predict anything the Astros at the span of no time at all went from the best offense to the worst offense and that doesn't make any sense so yeah no prediction but I don't care (laughs) you know what I'll say the Astros win the series yeah wow I'm back okay (laughs) even though you just said the odds are against yeah they are I don't care here I am (laughs) okay a quick word on the Tigers hiring Ron Gardenhire. I don't have a whole lot to say about that. Maybe this is more of an off-season topic, but it does strike me as kind of curious that we've now gone maybe back to an older model of managerial hiring. I don't know. Probably that's too sweeping a statement. But when the Tigers hired Brad Osmus, I think I wrote an article for Baseball Prospectus about the trend at the time, which was to hire recently retired young 
rookie managers, essentially, guys who maybe were more malleable, maybe could connect with younger players better. It's it's become a younger players game, at least right now, and it's become a game where the front office wants to have more input than it historically has into the coaching staff and field staff and managers dealings and so it seemed like that model like the Matheny and Osmus and Craig Council later and and others that this was kind of the new model of manager rather than sort of the guy who you know starts at that age maybe but then kind of manages off and on for the next two or three decades and gets fired somewhere and gets picked up somewhere else and so now Osmus has been let go and, and not renewed and Ron Gardner has been hired, who is, of course, a a veteran manager, and he's 59, which is actually younger than I would have guessed that Ron Gardner (laughs) was, but longtime Twins manager. He was just the Diamondbacks bench coach. He is the typical guy who's been around the block and veteran manager type. And going from Osmus to Gardenhire is maybe a rejection of that Osmus model of manager. And I guess you could say mixed results with that model of manager, whether it's Osmus and Matheny, who have certainly managed winning teams, but have not been known as good tactical managers. And that's one criticism you could perhaps levy against these young managers is that they haven't had the seasoning. They haven't had time to improve their tactics and strategy. And so you would expect that to be worse potentially, although maybe you'd expect them to be less stuck in their ways and old school and to embrace new strategies. So in a way they could have been better, but weren't. But other guys, you know, council for instance, has been a good manager, I would I would say. And I don't know who else is there. Um, I guess you could lump uh, maybe well, I guess you could say... Service? Yeah, yeah, you could put Scott Service in there. You could put Walt Weiss, I guess, who also didn't last, and he was replaced by Bud Black, who is that old-school sort of manager, or at least older manager, and he was the one who the Rockies back to the playoffs. So mixed results at best, I guess, for that type of manager that Osmus embodied, and now we've got Ron Gardenhire. So maybe things are swinging back in the other direction. So let's. This is not what's important. So Garden Hire was a bench coach for the Diamondbacks this year, as you mentioned, and so he saw the Diamondbacks. He was there as the Diamondbacks got swept by the Dodgers in 2010. The last time Ron Garden Hire was the manager of the Twins, they got swept in the first round. 2009, the Twins got swept in the first round. 2006, Twins got swept in the first round, and 2004, the Twins won the first game, and then they got swept in the rest of the first round. So Ron Garden Hire has lost three, six, nine. 12 15 playoff games in a row as some sort of <laughs> coaching figure 12 as a manager and three as a assistant manager i guess so that's not good but the good news for ron godden is the tigers didn't hire him to lead them to the playoffs because that's not what they're going to do yeah. and i don't know it's always hard to talk about any manager this is how it's always been i don't know what you're looking for as a manager of a bad baseball team a team you know is going to be bad you know it's going to be rebuilding and you know it's going to be going through one of the most difficult rebuilding processes that we've seen the tigers are not starting out from the same position as the Brewers or the Astros, the Cubs or the Phillies or anything, anyone else you want to talk about. It's going to be, it's probably going to be rough for the Tigers. And I don't know what you see in Garden Hire aside from maybe he's just more authoritative than Osmus. Now, his last four years that he managed the Twins, they were terrible every season. So maybe you're just like, well, he clearly has patience for this crap. Yeah. So maybe he just, maybe they trust him to be able to steer the ship through some rough waters. But I don't know what the destination is. I don't know, even for, for Garden Hire himself, I know that there are only 30 managerial jobs in the game there are a lot of open ones but i don't know maybe the tigers were the only chance he felt like he had maybe the red sox Mm -hmm. didn't want to hire him who knows but i it's hard to see the upside aside from you get a job but i guess it's a overall a desirable job even though garden hire is guaranteed to be giving a lot of post-game interviews where he talks about well you know buck farmer left everything he had out on the mound but you know when he give up seven runs in the first three innings and oh you're just looking for a quality of bats and this team never quits you know this team just doesn't Mm -hmm. give away a uh, yeah (laughs) yeah yeah often uh, probably garden hard just wanted to get back into a managerial job and would have taken whatever was offered to him but yeah usually or sometimes at least you see kind of young manager hired to manage young team maybe they connect better maybe he doesn't have the prestige or the resume that can get him a job on a 
most competitive team and then sometimes you will go to more of a Ron Gartenhire type when you're on the other side of that rebuilding and you want to get the team back to the playoffs but this is kind of a reversal of that anyway I don't mean that the young manager trend is over or anything like it seems like Alex Cora will probably get a managerial job and he's 42 a fairly recently retired player and uh, of course you know, he's been a bench coach, at least. He's had coaching experience, and that was the thing with some of those managers. They were just going essentially from retirement to managing, which was new or seemed to be new. So you have a chat. We have to end. Just wanted to mention Marshawn Lynch <laughs> did I forgot. the thing that, that – yeah, we've we've talked about a, a player getting ejected and then going and sitting in the stands in street clothes. Marshawn Lynch did that. He shoved an official in a game on Thursday night and then showed up in the stands wearing a hoodie and uh, and just uh, just sat there, watched the rest of the game. Then he took Bart home and was wearing like a partial face mask, it looks like, and a cap and a, and a hoodie. And people were taking pictures of him on Bart. And so, yeah, that was uh, that's the scenario that we've discussed. And it happened in football, not baseball, but very fun. Well done, Marshawn Lynch. And uh, feedback also from our discussion yesterday of the AL families and NL families in the MLB shop ad. Listener named Andrew says, while my family does have a specific team, go Nationals. They did not go. (laughs) When that team is eliminated from the playoffs, we do switch our allegiance to the National League and root for the team that represents the league. We do not, however go so far as to buy every team in the league's memorabilia and gear. So, yeah, I think that's the difference. I could see rooting for the NL or AL team that is the last standing, but not for every (laughs) NL and AL team. (laughs) So that's the difference. All right, we got to go. And, of course, just after we recorded an episode about the renaissance for older managers, Dusty Baker was fired. Somewhat surprising, but that's probably part of an episode in itself, so maybe we'll talk about that at length next time. Also, Jeff wanted me to mention that when he noted that Ron Gardenhire managed or coached teams had lost a bunch of postseason games consecutively, he overlooked this year's wildcard game, which, of course, the Diamondbacks won. So there was that one playoff victory in there. Save your tweets and emails. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Nico Zerbonia, Chris Von Brecht, Kevin Dynan, Seth Resnick, and Andy Young. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Have a wonderful weekend. We will talk to you and discuss the World Series next week. We're getting some kind of grinding noise on the track.